This episode of the Religious Studies Project is sponsored by SENSAM, the Center for the Study of Apocalyptic and Millenarian Movements. Um, their conference on AI and Apocalypse coming up very soon, uh, but also um, at their, they will have an exhibition um, called Decoding the Apocalypse, which is a major art installation by Michael Takeo Magruder. It's running from March the 8th until June the 29th. And you can also check out their next conference in June, Apocalypse in Art, the Creative Unveiling. So thanks very much to Sensam. But now, on with the usual podcast. Welcome back, dear listeners, to the Religious Studies Project. As always, I'm David Robertson. And I think I've always been Chris Carter. You have as long as I've known you, certainly. What have we got this week, Chris? Um, We've got an interview that uh, Tom White recorded with uh, Professor Will Sweetman on the the category of Hinduism, um, and it's called Against Invention a richer history for Hinduism. So going against perhaps a lot of that popular discourse that we have about Hinduism being a a modern sort of colonial or post-colonial invention. So it'll be really good to hear this interview. It will indeed. Let's hand over. Kia and a warm welcome from the Otago University Recording Studios here in Dunedin on New Zealand's South Island, where I'm joined today by our very own Associate Professor Will Sweetman. Professor Sweetman is a historian of religion whose research focuses on the interactions between the religions of Asia and the West in the modern period, and has published three books and several academic articles that explore the historical and theoretical aspects of the study of religion, with a particular focus on South Indian traditions. Will, thank you very much for agreeing to this interview, and welcome to the Religious Studies Project. Pleasure. Thank you. Uh, now, the topic I'm hoping to discuss today with you um, is what you describe to me as a defense of the ism, with the particular ism in question being the term Hinduism. But perhaps to ease our way in, we maybe should start at the beginning, um, or at least your academic beginning, as it were. So, Will, um, could you please describe your early training in the study of the history of religion and how this has shaped the trajectory of your research career? Sure. So it was very much a happy accident, I did my undergraduate degree at Lancaster, which is probably very well known to the listeners to this podcast, uh, but it wasn't to me. I chose to go to Lancaster to study maths and philosophy, and religious studies was, you were required to study a third subject in your first year, and for me it was very much uh, a toss-up between religious studies and psychology, but the cues for psychology were much longer. <laughs> uh, so I decided to choose religious studies and really never looked back. So I, I switched to philosophy and religious studies for the, for the remainder of my degree. Uh, but what that meant was my understanding of what the academic study of religion was, was shaped by that Lancaster tradition, which was uh, open to all traditions and emphasized uh, really none. And even though much of the work I did uh, was in fact on the Christian tradition because of my interest in philosophy uh, and because there were papers in uh, the Lancaster, the religious studies department that were focused on uh, the paper was called Modern Religious and Atheistic Thought uh, and was focused really on 18th century and after uh, philosophical thinking about religion. My work was very much focused on Western Christian thinkers and, mm-hmm. and thought or coming out of that tradition. But I didn't 
privilege that in a way uh, that I, when I went on, my initial uh, aim was to do more philosophy of religion. Uh, and I went to Cambridge to do a, a, a master, an MPhil in, in philosophy of religion. Uh, very quickly discovered that that wasn't quite what I wanted to do, but partly because although Cambridge was a, had a re- religious studies, it was the faculty of theology or faculty of divinity with, uh, teaching theology, theological and religious studies, the assumptions were so different. Mm-hmm. And really it was that, uh, jarring discovery that the Lancaster way was not the only way that, uh, because Lancaster really was my only experience of what it was to treat religion in the academy. But at Cambridge, it was very different. And that prompted in me the question of how did these two such different traditions, um, emerge? And really that led me to the 18th century and looking at, uh, foundational works like Hume's Natural History of Religion, uh, but how this a naturalistic approach uh, that privileges no religious tradition um, uh, emerged. That in turn then led me to looking at uh, the religions that were being studied, or the non-Christian religions, I suppose, the non-Western traditions that were being studied or discovered in Europe at that time. And because, I suppose, of the colonial expansion going on in India, uh, it was particularly Hinduism uh, that was being discovered and discussed at that time, which then led me to my uh, my doctoral work on uh, the study of Hinduism and the conceptualization of Hinduism from the, uh, say, the 17th through to the 18th. Uh, originally, I intended to include the 19th century, but... It just got a bit too much. Yeah, yeah, as many PhD students discover. Okay, great. Um, the uh, It seems that you've got quite a, a personal narrative then feeding into your research interests. Um, in terms of the actual methods of the historical study of religion, uh, particularly interreligious contact, what would you say are the, the best habits of analysis or the important things to watch out for when you're engaging in such research? So for me, uh, by temperament, I think as much as anything else, um, because I'm not really trained as a historian, um, although that's how I would describe myself, um, attention to the sources is absolutely paramount. Um, and that means, particularly in the, in the context of what we're talking about, where most of my work is set, that is the, the period of European expansion overseas, uh, encounter with and study of uh, non-Western cultures. Well, two things. First of all, uh, the European sources... Um, but particularly also the the sources from the other side. Uh, now that's always harder, I think. In in there may be a few exceptions in some uh, later periods or highly literate cultures, uh, but certainly it's much harder generally to recover the voice from the non-European side of the encounter. Harder, but I would say not impossible. Um, there are ways of doing it. Um, and it's important, even though it's difficult, not to shortcut that process. So there are, there, there is a tendency, I think, even in the works of some scholars whose work otherwise I would admire. Um, I'm thinking here particularly of Urs App's recent book, The Birth of Orientalism, uh, which is a, is a wonderful book. Um, but he has a tendency to dismiss the sources that are described by Western scholars as their own inventions to say that, uh, they made, simply made up the source, doesn't exist. Um, now that's a possibility, 
But before you can say the source doesn't exist, you have to do your damnedest to find out whether it does. <laughs> um, and there is a particular example in, in, in my own work. Um, uh, this is a, a early 18th century Protestant uh, German missionary uh, who assembled a library of Tamil sources, uh, which he documented, he catalogued quite carefully, which is unusual for that period. More often, uh, other Similar writers, missionaries, and others would simply have some general term like in their books. Uh, but he identifies the text, and some of them are very well known, and it's no, no, not difficult to identify them. Uh, but there's one particular text uh, which he said is the most important of all the Hindu texts. Uh, it clearly isn't, partly because there is no other reference to this text <laughs> anywhere, so far as I can discover. Uh, I had the good fortune when I came to Otago to be given some research money uh, that was pretty much I didn't have to compete very hard for it. Um, I simply had to propose a project, so I proposed the project I thought nobody else would ever fund, which was a wild goose chase to go looking for this text. Yes. And courtesy of a, of a brilliant research assistant, uh, Ilakovan, uh, who worked with me, um, a young Tamil scholar, uh, it took him about 10 or 12 months going through archives uh, very diligently, and he found the source. Uh, so it is possible to recover the source, and it's not the most important text. It's a was wrongly evaluated, but it was the most important text for this particular missionary. And it, by, by reading this source, we can see what he's doing with it and how that's shaping his own account of Hinduism, uh, which is undoubtedly shaped by his Protestant Christian presuppositions. And so this is, uh, the missionary Bartholomew? Siegenberg. Siegenberg, sorry, yeah. Um, so it's, it's, it's still, it is fed through his Christian presuppositions, but it isn't sheer invention. He is following a text. And what's interesting about this text is that, uh, it's a basically monotheistic text. So when Ziegenberg describes Hindus as, as monotheists, this is not, uh, it's not only a relic of Christian assumptions about the natural light of reason and a universal revelation, but the the result of his reading, his close reading of a text that we can now sort of follow him and and read that text and, and discover. So that's why I would say the, the key thing is is attention to those sources. Um, on on the European side of the encounter, I would also um, I regularly bemoan uh, the fact that because the sources are thickest. Uh, in the 19th century, uh, and because the vast majority of people who work, uh, particularly Indian scholars, um, but not only, who work on these sources are Anglophone, uh, that's all they read is, mm -hmm. is English sources. Um, and it's Im really important, I think, to look at uh, sources in other European languages and there are, of course, people looking at those languages. I've recently started using Portuguese sources, which are the most amazing mine um, of material. And they have been read, but largely they've been read by Portuguese scholars who mm -hmm. tend to publish yes. in Portuguese. Um, not exclusively, there are exceptions to that. But so I would say that, that going beyond the Anglophone sources, or the, rather the failure to go beyond the Anglophone sources is a particular problem in much of the historiography of Colonial encounters of, uh, um, of religion. Again, there are exceptions, but as a generalization. So, so the importance of a uh, linguistic uh, uh, analysis and making sure that they are covering all the different um, cultural colonial experiences of the, the European adventure. Um, perhaps relating to this, um, at the start of your book, Mapping Religion, Hinduism and the Study of Indian Religions, uh, 1600 to 1776, published in 2003, um, 
You equated the, the dominant history of Hinduism in India as a, as a just-so story. Um, what, what did you mean by this? So a just-so story, as I'm sure you know, is uh, Kipling stories of how the leopard got his spots uh, and so on. And I think there are a couple of uh, accounts of how many of the terms that we are familiar with in, in the study of religion, how those terms came to be used. Uh, so in the case of Hinduism, uh, there's a popular account that this was a matter of divide and rule, uh, that the British, by dividing Muslims from Hindus, were able to uh, dominate both, set them against each other. Uh, or there's another story, uh, which I first heard from uh, one of my teachers at Lancaster, uh, which was that the missionaries needed a, an opponent. Uh, they were used to systematic debates, and therefore they constructed an opponent with whom they could have a debate. Now, what's just so about these stories is though it could have happened like that. That may be how it happened, but there's no evidence that it did. Or I would say there's a, obviously there's a grain of truth in both of those stories, um, but the real story is much more complicated um, and involves, uh, again, patient attention um, to the sources. So in the case uh, in that book, what I trace is how the emergence of the concept of Hinduism as a single pan-Indian religion, distinct from Buddhism and Jainism in particular, uh, emerges uh, at least in part um, from uh, experience of Europeans in India and attention to uh, texts. So the question of the uh, the spread of Hinduism as a, as a religion throughout India but confined to India and therefore different from uh similar-looking or outwardly similar uh, religious traditions elsewhere in Asia um, partly arose from Europeans observing phenomena like pan-Indian pilgrimage, that there are pilgrims from the north of India uh, coming to the major pilgrimages sites in the south, um, or that the uh, some of the, for example, the mythology of Krishna, much of it is set in north India, uh, but there were Europeans reading the mythology of Krishna in south India uh, in South Indian texts, in Tamil sources, which describe Krishna um, in Vrindavan and in, in, in other places in, in North India. So it was on the basis of this that Europeans began to connect um, phenomena of Hinduism um, in uh, different parts of India. And then the, the opposite side of the question is, what do you exclude? Uh, and again, it was from looking at Indian sources that Europeans uh, decided that Buddhism and Jainism were regarded as more or less beyond the pale. And again, if you look at uh, South Indian uh, religious sources, the Tamil texts um, are very clear. There's one Tamil author who devotes one poem in uh, one verse in each of his poems uh, to denouncing the filthy Jains um, <laughs> and the uh, you know the heretic Buddhists. So, and it was through attention to these sources that that Europeans worked out that there was a dividing line here somewhere. Um, there may well have been, and, and no doubt this, this idea was consolidated by the practice of censuses by the British, um, and the, there was a degree of um, the other just-so story that I mentioned, the idea of, of, of missionaries seeking an opponent, so using Indian sources saying, you know, not all Indians agree with us, the Buddhists disagree with you, they say the Veda is you know, an idol worshipper. So there, there's a grain of truth in those stories, but... The full story is more interesting, uh, I think, and also shows uh, a, a greater degree of Indian agency in the production of these classifications, um, or if not directly agency, at least input. Mm -hmm. 
So the the argument that Hinduism is actually a far more coherent set of or a, a far more uh, collected uh, system of rituals and beliefs and institutions than perhaps the the Hinduism's narrative mm-hmm. presents. Um, how how does these arguments sit perhaps within more current debates about religion and the public space in India? Do, is there is there a way that this kind of uh, scholarship can speak to contemporary issues, perhaps regarding the BJP or Hindutva um, and you know, other current um, religious public sphere issues taking place in India at present? Yeah, it's an it's an interesting question, and there is a danger, I think, um, that arguing for a greater coherence uh, in Hinduism will give succor to those who argue that Hinduism is the Indian religion and there should be no other. Um, but there's also a danger, and you can see this in, in, in the works of some modern Hindutva uh, ideologues or thinkers, uh, who present the critique of the idea of Hinduism as an attack on Hinduism. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're trying to tell us that our religion doesn't exist. Uh, so in a way, those who, not for that reason, of course, but who have attempted to deconstruct the idea of Hinduism are, are, are also able to give, or also in danger of giving succor to those who want to say, see, the West is out to destroy Hinduism. We need to unify and rise up. Um, so... You know, the, the, the dangers are, I mean, I guess in the end, you can't control how your ideas are going to be used. Some unusual people have cited my work in ways that don't really, <laughs> uh, were, were never part of my intention. Uh, but that's, you, you can't control that. You have to go where the sources lead you. Um, and it's not an argument, I think, to say, uh, we shouldn't say this because it might be used in a way that's, uh, not, not, in our to our liking yes um, yes uh the um i'm finding similar uh questions and uh challenges in relation to my research in fiji in terms of you know where where, where do these ideas uh you know feed into other kind of political agendas but uh, i think you're right you just have to um go where the sources take you Sorry to interrupt the episode, but we just wanted to let you know to remind you about our Patreon link. Uh, The Religious Studies Project has always been free since its inception, uh, but we know that there's a great problem in academia with uh, people not being paid for the work that they're expected to do, particularly early career scholars. And we at the RSP want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. So you can help if you can spare even one pound a month um, by going to patreon.com slash Project RS and subscribing. We know that these podcasts are very useful for people who are teaching and people in their learning. So if you can help um, either by subscribing there or by making a one-off donation using the PayPal button on our website, it would be greatly appreciated and will help us keep bringing you this podcast for free and fight against exploitation in academia. But now, back to the episode. Now, as I understand it, you've been collecting case studies regarding the conceptualization of religion uh, or kind of world religion type uh, concepts uh, in pre-colonial and colonial encounters outside of India. Um, can you tell us a little bit about this? Yeah, so this isn't really something that I've done consciously, but I, I guess uh, over the last 10 years or so, I have done little more than pay attention to where I have seen 
uh, arguments similar to my own being made in the case of um, other traditions. And for a while now, I've thought that it would be interesting to uh, do some kind of survey or compilation of the kinds of evidence that's that's being presented um, and look at what that is telling us about or what that suggests about this broader critique of uh, the formation of the isms. Um, so I'll be giving a paper at the Australian Association of the Study of Religion Conference uh, fairly soon, which will be entitled The End of Invention, and it's uh, a first attempt to survey uh, the kinds of evidence that, that's coming out. And really, I think the the invention thesis, of, if I can call it that, um, which is now old hat, as it were, um, it's, it's, it's become orthodoxy, uh, and that would be that, that the isms, uh, Hinduism and Buddhism, say, are the ones perhaps most pertinent to my work, um, but also the term religion itself mm-hmm. um, are invented, um, by which it's generally meant that these are modern, uh, that they are Western, uh, emerging out of a colonial encounter, and outsiders' terms, that they have no... Uh, analog or they don't represent anything in the, uh, the worldview, the mindset of the people who are described under these terms. Uh, I think all of those things are false. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's some very interesting work, um, coming out of, um, attention again to Portuguese sources, uh, on Buddhism. Stephen Berkowitz, uh, has recently published an article, um, challenging this idea that, that, uh, you find in the work of people like Philip Almond um, and others that Buddhism was a 19th century invention based on the study of text, and he's showing that now very clearly in the 16th and 17th century uh, Portuguese, mostly Jesuits, were communicating with each other across Asia or traveling in some cases. So Luis Frois, uh, a Jesuit, a 16th century Jesuit, uh, spent a lot of time in India um, and then went to Japan, um, and he understood the connections between um, India and Japan and uh, the trajectory of Buddhism from from one to the other. Um, from the other perspective or the other direction, um, Eva Pascal uh, has recently written about Franciscan uh, friars uh, coming from the Philippines uh, into Thailand or Siam and uh, engaging with Buddhism. And again, uh, like Freus, who described Buddhism as a religion, uh, making the same analogy. Um, so that's that's one uh, set of case studies. Um, there's another which is looking at perhaps more um, at uh, indigenous understandings of this. Uh, so this would be the work I'm thinking here of Ilsa Morgenstein first, um, who's looked at Islamic at uh, South Asian uh, sources, which not only classify religions in a way that's not dissimilar to the supposedly modern Western um, way in which we classify religions, uh, but she's also shown that the, the the very scholars in the 19th century, who are usually to whom this classification is usually attributed, were influenced by. They were reading these sources. So mm-hmm. um, uh, Abu Fazl, a uh, Muslim intellectual, Mughal intellectual who who describes the religions of India, um, was being studied intently by British scholars in, in the middle of the 19th century. Um, and then finally, I, I mean, again, you could see that, uh, I guess, the, 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 the Mughal Empire as, as a form of cross-cultural uh, encounter, uh, even it's an empire. Um, but there are even... Um, 
on a on a on a deeper level indigenous accounts um and here i'm thinking mostly of the work of andrew nicholson uh, his book unifying hinduism uh, so he looks at pre-modern uh, doxographies um from as early as the 6th century mm-hmm. uh in india which are concerned with classifying the different schools of thought that there are um and some of these these are not all hindu there are buddhist and jain texts and perhaps particularly buddhist and jain sources were interested in this uh but what's very interesting is that he shows that uh toward you know the slightly later texts uh, but still very much pre-modern um there is a kind of coalescing of an idea of an astika um so texts that affirm the vedas um, a, a unification of it's not quite what we might call Hinduism, um, but it's not it's not a million miles from it either. So hence the title of his book is Unifying Hinduism. And again, this is is not a reaction to either Muslim um, or uh, Western uh, incursions, um, colonial structures. It's it's something coming from within the tradition and within debate between different um, schools of thought within uh, within the Indian tradition. So I think um, these are, there are some other older works as well. Uh, Michael Pye's work on Tominaga Nakamoto, uh, a again pre-European influence, um, Japanese intellectual uh, discussing the the three religions of Sanjiao uh, in China: Confucianism, Taoism, and, and, and Buddhism. And again, coming up with a generic concept that's not unlike the concept of religion, which is supposedly invented like everything else uh, in the nineteenth century. <laughs> um, okay. Well, the um, the argument seems to be that the use of the term religion is older, uh, broader, transects. Outsider, insider distinctions. Um, does that mean that scholars of religion are, you know, safe? Does that mean we can rest easily? Are we no longer at risk from the conceptual tools of our analysis? Um, I think the, the approach that I would take to this um, is to say it's it's better the devil you know. So the work that's been done in deconstructing, um, historicizing uh, the concept of religion um, is by no means valueless. I'm not saying we should discard that um, and go back um, to a, a happy sense that this is a natural kind and it em- emerges from the world un- unproblematically. Um, but I, I think the proposals from some scholars that we should replace religion with some other term um, I mean, you go all the way back to Cantwell Smith and I think cumulative traditions or uh, uh, Timothy Fitzgerald has, has made various proposals of things that we might. Uh, the problem is that those terms uh, are no less the result of our attempts to construct reality in accordance with our own presuppositions. So the advantage to my mind um, of the terms like religion and Hinduism uh, is that we are now, because of the work of these scholars who've deconstructed them, much more keenly aware of their limitations, and I don't think that they are applicable in every circumstance. So I think there are, for example, scholars who've done um, ethnographic work on sites in India where you will have people coming to a particular site which is might formally have been described as Hindu, and what they're showing is that this this label is is very problematic. Um, and in the, the kinds of people who are coming to those sites 
aren't maybe clearly identified or, or can be labeled as Hindu or Muslim or Christian in, in, in some cases. Uh, so I, and I would agree in that context, the label Hinduism is perhaps not useful, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean that there's no context in which it's useful. So it's always a matter of what the context is, what the purpose is, um, for us. Uh, I think one of the things that strikes me as a little bit odd, um, is, uh, and again, this is something I've, I've kept track of over the years is a number of times you'll, you'll hear a speaker, um, or at the beginning of a book, somebody will deconstruct the term Hinduism, um, and having sort of cleared their throat and covered their bases in this term, will then go on to use the term in exactly, with exactly the same referent, mm-hmm. um, yes. as the supposedly pre-critical scholars who use it. So Donald Lopez had a nice joke about this, um, which is he said you could spot scholars of Hinduism by their overdeveloped pectoral muscles from continually having to make scare quotes, um, <laughs> in the air every time they used the word Hinduism. But the point is that they continue to use the word Hinduism mm-hmm. and the scare yes. quotes were there. So I, I think we can and we should continue to use the term. Um, and the danger of replacing it with some other term or replacing religion with some other term is that we would, because those terms haven't been so thoroughly deconstructed, is, is we would be tempted to think of them as more closely corresponding to some actual reality and less constructed in a way in which they, which they, they aren't really. Mm. Um, yeah, that, that's, um, it's also a lot of a lot of heavy lifting to go and create these new terms and kind mm-hmm. of you know trying to accurately uh, describe what they uh, how they can kind of convey meanings that aren't um, subject to the same problems as previously. I think the, you know the other the other dimension here is that um, precisely because of their history, uh, these terms have a purchase beyond the academy uh, that we we can't ignore um, and. Uh, so this is sometimes described as, you know, uh, people in religious studies sawing off the branch on which they sit. Now, uh, if it were the case that the term, uh, there was a compelling argument for discarding the term and disbanding studies of departments of the study of religion, um, our own financial self-interest wouldn't be a reason to retain the term. Um, but there are other reasons, as, I, as I've tried to explain, why I think we should. Um, and given that if we... If we are to speak to the public sphere, um, we need to do so in ways that are intelligible. And talking about cumulative traditions or hierarchical structures simply doesn't cut it. It just doesn't um, communicate. Yeah, yeah. And we can, we can go on to complicate what those terms mean, um, but we, we would be ill-advised, I think, to abandon them um, from that point of view as well. Yes, um, I, I agree. I do agree. Um, okay, last question, Will. Um, we've been talking about the, the historical study of religion and its importance to the broader discipline of religious studies and its methodologies. Now, in 2020, the International Association for the History of Religion will host its next World Congress here in Dunedin. Now, as head of department for religion and theology at Otago, I'd imagine you've already started to think through uh, what you hope this might look like or what uh, ambitions you might have for the event. Um, can you share some early thoughts that you might have on this, please? Sure. Um, I think there's a lot of reasons for, for doing this. Uh, some of my colleagues um, think I'm, I'm mad to even contemplate it. Um, but I think the, there's, there's a lot of things that, that, that benefits that I see in this. And uh, I mean, one of the, the primary aims is to share this wonderful part of the world with scholars from all over the world and we hope many will come um and i think 
we should be honest about the fact that that's a reason why many people will come um, because uh, New Zealand is a, is a wonderful place and it'll be great to share it. But it's also, for me, the, the other side of that is uh, religious studies in New Zealand, as it is in many parts of the world, um, is a relatively small and in some cases embattled discipline. Um, we have lost departments um, of religious studies in uh, even the short time that I've been uh, in New Zealand. And those that, that do exist are um, small for the most part and uh, not exactly directly threatened, but um, not as secure as they'd like to be. So I hope that um, hosting an event of this sort um, will help in, in a, a, a host of ways um, to consolidate the discipline here, to uh, create visibility um both internationally for what's work that's being done in New Zealand, uh, but also within New Zealand uh, to bring to the attention of our colleagues, our academic colleagues, and and uh, people more more broadly also uh, what the academic study of religion is. That's a constant battle. Um, New Zealand is a country where religion is. Um, I would compare it often. It's for many people what your religion is or that. Religion at all is of about as much interest as whether you prefer strawberry or chocolate ice cream. Um, it's it's there's a kind of apathy toward religion, um, not not always, but um, and I think demonstrating the importance of what we do by bringing the best scholars from around the world um, to talk about what they're doing and why the study of religion is important um, will be will be important. Also, it'll give our graduate students. We're a remote location. Um, don't always get an opportunity to interact with these people. So it will be a, a kind of a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, I think, for uh, for younger scholars in, in New Zealand to, to really um, see the, 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 the scope of what's going on overseas and to interact personally with those people, which is uh, – there's something irreplaceable about that, that opportunity, which is, I, I think young scholars in New Zealand don't have as much as scholars in other parts of the world. Thank you, Will. Well, on that rather optimistic and forward-looking note, uh, I think we'll draw this interview to a close. But thank you very much for sharing your thoughts and expertise with us. Thank you, and we look forward to seeing you all in 2020. Indeed. Thank you now. Excellent to hear another interview from Tom there. Wonderful to hear uh, Will Sweetman finally on the podcast. And good to hear that um, tantalizing chat about IAHR 2020, which um, we're certainly both hoping to attend. And we would we hope indeed. many of our listeners would want to attend. And the IAHR, along with BASR and NASR, um, are our sort of headline sponsors for the podcast. So very much looking forward to that. I do. We have any other news? I'm. I'm not. Yeah. I'm not sure. Really. <laughs> uh, we're right in that middle of the year time when um, we're kind of. Well, I'm. I, I tell you what. Actually, probably for the listener, hopefully you might be heading down to Milton Keynes for the conference, which I've been organising. Uh, when is that conference, David? Well, it's the nineteenth, which is today. Today. So if you're <laughs> travelling down, um, you know, I'll see you in a wee while. But it's it's going to be good. Excellent. We'll have, don't forget Bettina's keynotes this afternoon. I'll see you there. Fantastic. And hopefully a podcast or two happening, um, in amongst your busy schedule down there. Indeed. And we've got another few podcasts, um, lined up as well. Um, but we'll, we'll save the news on those until a bit later. Um, next week. Um, I've been speaking to Lois Lee once more. Um, we spoke to her right back in the first year of the podcast. I interviewed her with, um, our esteemed colleague, 
Ethan Quillen on the, the topic of non-religion. And, um, now five years on, um, I thought we'd check in. Um, she's now heading up a, a big research project and uh, looking at the category of quote, unbelief. Well, quite, unquote. quite a lot's happened in that field in that five years. There's been a lot of uh, quantitative work done for a start, which is, uh, shaking up a few assumptions. So it'd be interesting to see, um, how that's developed in the past five years. Exactly. And also to reflect on broader research that's happening sort of out with, um, Anglophone context, Western context, and, and you're really pushing the, the emerging field a bit further. Um, but that's next week. So we'll be hearing more from that's me then. next week. Yeah. Um, let's just wrap up and, uh, and say what we always say, Chris. Thanks for listening. The Religious Studies Project is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. Brought to you by Founders and Editors-in-Chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson, and Managing Editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Jonathan Tuckett, and our opportunities digest by Yana Shirley. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock, with audio assistance from Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford, and sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop. Don't forget, you can support the project using our Amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links, or by donating at patreoncom projectrs And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google Plus, YouTube, iTunes, and other portals. <laughs>